Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell. I'm going to be one of your hosts here tonight at The Real Science Exchange. And tonight we're discussing colostrum with a leading industry expert and an exciting new opportunity to hear uh, from the practical side from a herd manager that uh, has some farm experience, going to share that with us tonight. So let's dive right uh, in. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Sandra Godden to the podcast after a very successful webinar on colostrum research earlier this year. In fact, that took place on November 8th, 2023. And so if you've not heard that yet, would recommend that you go back and listen to that. I think it, right now it's the, the first one on the top of all the webinars. Also say that... Um, that that is the 83rd it's hard to believe jeff that we've had 83 of these um webinars so far but that's where we are right now uh sandra welcome to the pub tonight uh, it's good to see you thank you very much scott pleasure to be here yeah you know i've heard your name uh bandied around forever and this is the first time i've got to meet you i haven't met you face to face but looking forward to that but this will have to do for now um dr godden i understand you've brought a guest with you uh tonight would you mind introducing her for us yeah i'm i'm thrilled to have trish bodillo excuse me trish bodillo here um this evening uh trish i i don't know how long i've known you i've lost track of time probably at least 15 years i think um, so ish uh, Trish is the herd manager at Cheaty Crest Holsteins down in southeast Minnesota, um, and I've had the pleasure of working with her on projects and uh, student teaching, herd visits, and the like over the years, off and on. And um, she, she just does a fantastic job, so I'm thrilled to have her here tonight. Thanks, Trish, for being here. Thank you. It is uh, my pleasure also to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled as well, right? It's not often or every time that we have a, a practical aspect to the podcast. So really looking forward to that, Tricia. Um, you know, I think we talked about before, this is a virtual pub with real drinks. So in that theme, uh, do you have anything special in your glass tonight? I confess I don't because um, oh. I'm, I've still got some work to do. But I can tell you that as we approach the holidays, this is a cup of coffee, mug of coffee I'm holding up. There will be some Baileys added to my coffee as my little morning treat yeah, uh, yeah. through the holidays. So that's what I've got to look forward to. And I brought a bubbler made <laughs> in Wisconsin right across the river from us. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> awesome. Good deal. And finally, I'd like to introduce my co-host tonight. Uh, welcome back, my good friend and uh, fellow uh, teammate, uh, uh, Jeff Elliott. Um, welcome back to the pub once again. Um, so tell us, what's, what's in your glass tonight? Well, I'm actually uh, double-fisted today. The change of seasons in Texas, the colds hit, so I've had a little bit of sinus congestion so i've had a little cough so i'm trying to prevent that during this so i've got hot tea with honey on this side to help with that and if that doesn't work i've got um a good bourbon okay good so, bourbon so i'm surprised you usually kind of do a uh a tequila jeff's one of the only people i know that loves uh high quality sipping tequila so i, I if i was to have guessed jeff I, I would have guessed that's what you were having tonight well uh, the only reason i went with bourbon was uh, due to this little cough I've got. And that's what my mom started me on as a hot tie. It was bourbon. Yeah. So. yeah, good deal. Well, I'm having a bourbon as well. I'm having a different one, Jeff, that I've not had before. This one is, it's called Long Branch. It says it's a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. 
with oak and Texas mesquite charcoal refined. Now, I know you're a Texan. I know you're used to mesquite. Yeah. I don't taste any mesquite. Uh, my, my palate's <laughs> not that refined, but, but I can say that it's, uh, it, it is quite tasty and uh, I approve. So I, I would recommend this one. Anyway, cheers, folks. Welcome to the Real Science cheers. Exchange, and, and here's to a great podcast tonight. All right, cheers. New research is changing everything we thought we knew about choline's impact on the cow and her calf, and top scientists have a lot to say about it. They are presenting new research that supports choline as a required nutrient to optimize milk production, choline as a required nutrient to support a healthy transition, choline as a required nutrient to improve calf health and growth, and choline as a required nutrient to increase colostrum quantity. This new research is solidifying choline's role as a required nutrient for essentially every cow, regardless of health status, milk production level, or body condition score. Learn more about the science that is changing the game and the choline source that is making it happen. Reassure Precision Release Choline from Balchem. Visit balchem.com slash scientists say to learn more. All right. So, Sandra, to begin the conversations, let's start with a 30,000-foot overview of what you discussed during uh, the webinar. And, and I'll say the webinar was uh, titled, Colostrum is Liquid Gold. Now, let's get uh, the most we can out of it. So, kind of give us that 30,000-foot uh, foot overview of it. Um, sure, Scott. So, as much as maybe some people are bored hearing about colostrum management, we've been talking about it for decades, um, there is still a lot of opportunity out there in, in the field uh, for herds to improve on, on how they're managing the program. And there's still a lot that the that researchers and farms are learning about how to advance uh, colostrum management and do even better. So during the webinar, we talked about the, the basics um, the three cues people have heard about, you know, quality, quantity, quickness, um, what we know about that, uh, if there's anything new that we've learned about that. Um, but we also talked about the importance of cleanliness, feeding clean colostrum and, and approaches to getting there. And then we spent a lot of time talking about monitoring, whether you're troubleshooting a problem in the, in the CAF program and you want to know, is it colostrum or is it something else? or preferably it's not just troubleshooting, it's ongoing monitoring that herds adopt, the veterinarians can help them with uh, just to keep track of the classroom program overall. And as part of the monitoring we presented, we talked about some new standards, um, new goals in terms of, of monitoring um, using serum total proteins or serum BRICS readings as a indirect estimator of serum IgG. We've got some new standards that were published that have been adopted in the last couple of years by the industry. So we talked a little bit about that as well. I guess one other thing um, we talked about that is not brand new, but it's getting more um, attention now, which I'm glad to see, is uh, post-closure feeding of colostrum supplements or transition milk and the value to that. So what I mean post-closure is after that first 24 hours when the gut can no longer absorb these antibodies into the circulation. There is still a lot of value to feeding uh, transition milk or second, third milk and colostrum 
for the next two to three weeks if you can practically implement it. And there, there are several studies now uh, demonstrating improved uh, health, reduced scars, reduced uh, bovine respiratory disease, uh, reduced antibiotic use, and in, enhanced gain, weight gain. So for herds that can practically implement something like that, a post-closure supplementation program, there's a lot of value to be captured there. So I'd, moving ahead, I'd love to see the industry do more of that if they can. Yeah, that was one of the more fascinating things that I uh, remember about your presentation with us, that aspect of it. And kind of relative to that, circling back to the four Qs, the first Q, quantity. So to implement a program like that, how much quantity do you need? Have you calculated that? Yeah, we're, we're still going by, I mean, what we've been doing for several years now, basically saying 10% of the birth weight of the calf, which for a Holstein calf is roughly four quarts, um, you know, 3.8 liters if you're sitting in Canada. Uh, that's the first feeding. And it has to be reasonably good quality. That's the next cue. But uh, four quarts at first feeding. And then if you can implement it, and I think the last NOM study said the majority of herds do uh, offer a second feeding of, of a couple of quarts at the next feeding, if, if you can implement that, if it's possible to do. So, okay, first and second feeding, but if you were in, to implement a program that goes for another two to three weeks, uh, and I think that was partial um, colostrum, how much more have you calculated that? How much in total would you require? Uh, I personally not calculated it, but I can tell you what the, the, the research projects that have been done to date, how much they've supplemented. So some of them have uh, got a milk replacer feeding program and they've added a colostrum supplement to the milk replacer for the next two to three weeks. And that's typically, well, it's ranged between 10 grams per day of IgG up as much as 25 grams of IgG supplemented at each feeding. And that seems to have a helpful beneficial effect. Um, we don't know yet. There needs to be more research as to whether a smaller dose would be effective or, you know, would a bigger dose be even more effective? Uh, we don't have those studies yet, but that 10 to 25 grams of IgG per feeding definitely does have a benefit. Um, in the one study that they weren't using a colostrum supplement, they were um, adding proportionately more uh, transition milk now um, to pasteurized whole milk feeding program, they didn't actually report the, the IgG that was coming in. They just reported the volume of transition milk they were adding. Basically, if they added, I'm trying to do math in my head, which is dangerous, um, roughly 25%, if 25% of the milk diet fed, 25 to 30% of the total volume fed was transition milk, as compared to just straight, you know, straight on whole milk. Um, that's where they saw the biggest benefit in terms of, of improved health. Uh, but again, that was one study. So we don't know what, you know, what the range in the effective dose is. There needs to be more research there. But I would encourage herds that um, can, if you are feeding a pasteurized whole milk feeding program, and if you can put your transition milk pool into that pool, there's got to be some benefit to that. Yeah, that's what we're doing, but it's getting mixed in with all of the milk. And so when I listened to your podcast as well, I was really intrigued and trying to figure out in my brain, how could I just um, identify the, you know, in the parlor, those cows that are under three days of milk in milk or three days and under sort that milk, 
get my employees to actually do it and then get that in three feedings, which it is going to be challenging, but that is on my list of things to try to figure out how to accomplish. Right. And I think if memory serves, Trish, you, you hand feed individually uh -huh. calves, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. And so you bring up a really good point, Trish, and, and this is something the industry has to get around. And this is why I uh, kind of position everything I say. If you can practically implement this, dot, dot, dot. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Is it practical to try to sort out um, and only feed the calves that are in the first two to three weeks, as opposed to, you know, it would be much simpler just to put it in the pool and everybody gets fed. What I was describing in the, the webinar was the research which has focused on the first two to three weeks, because the first couple of weeks, we all know, that's the high risk scours period, for example. Right. Um, so that's when we see more illness. So that's why those research studies targeted that high risk period for their supplementation. And particularly for the studies that we're supplementing with the colostrum replacer, the colostrum supplement, that's not inexpensive, no. that intervention. It's not cheap. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine, um, those people, they want to, if they're going to supplement, they want to supplement just through the high risk period. Um, the theory being there'll be a lesser benefit realized supplementing later. That being said, Trish, what you're doing may be benefiting, probably is benefiting all calves. And so we just don't have the studies that say, no, you only need, only need to work on the first two to three weeks versus, nah, just supplement everybody. There's probably a benefit to everybody. Yeah. Um, it's just that the research has just focused on this narrow high-risk window so far. So, I mean, if you can play with it, Trish, great. Good for you. Let me know how it goes. Uh -huh. But if it's just not practical, you know, the, this, the hassle of trying to sort this out, feed this calf this and that calf that, mm -hmm. I would just keep doing what you're doing. It's, yeah. it's benefiting everybody. I was just going to circle back, you know, from what you're saying, you know, the, the, the purchase colostrum is expensive, which means yeah. that would put a premium on uh, the colostrum that, that you have your cows make. And I'm kind of curious, is there anything that we can do to increase colostrum output from the cow? Maybe that's uh, different feeding programs, uh, management practices, prepartum. Just kind of curious if there's any research along those lines. Sure. And when you say output, Scott, do you mean the quality or do you mean the volume? I, I can, kind of a little bit of both, right? I, 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 I think uh, at the end of the day, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's what we're really looking to do is maximize as much IgG as possible it would be maybe true, the true. first. I mean, yeah. 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 At the end of the day, it's grams of IgG harvested, grams of IgG delivered, which is a function of quality and quantity. I can comment on on some of the the science that um, is associated with the quality, the concentration of IgG in the colostrum that you harvest, and a little bit um, on the volume harvested. And then I'd like to hear from Trish what what she's doing, what you're doing at Shady Crest to try to optimize uh, both quality and quantity. Quality quality is still our our first priority. Um, so there there are lots of factors that we can manage that are known to affect colostrum quality or IgG uh, concentration in the, in the colostrum harvested. Um, so I'm just going to try to remember off the top of my head. So, so nutrition, um, first and foremost, so dry, dry cow nutrition program, it's got to be correctly balanced for uh, minerals, trace minerals, vitamins, you know, 
energy, protein, etc. The truth is that if you are feeding a decent, well-balanced ration to benefit the cow, and you've got good feeding management that's going to promote good dry matter intakes, you're covered on the colostrum front. Um, we have to fairly severely restrict this nutrient, that nutrient, um, in order to negatively impact colostrum quality. And if you're going to restrict that, you're going to negatively impact the cow as well in her future lactation potential. So hopefully people are on top of their nutrition program and hopefully that's a given, you know, we, we can't make that assumption, but that's one thing. Um, let's see what else, uh, vaccination programs during the dry period. Uh, so and particularly vaccinating dry cows for the enteric pathogens that, that, that's, that cause scours in calves. So we're talking about E. coli, rotavirus, coronavirus, maybe clostridium. So there are several different um, commercial vaccines available that we can give the dry cow, the dry heifer, uh, as she approaches calving that couple months before, that will cause her to produce antibodies against those specific antigens, for example, E. coli, then she deposits those in the colostrum and then the calf gets fed. Now, it should be uh, said that if you do adopt one of these dry cow vaccine programs, you're not going to see a huge bump in the gross total IgG produced. So if you're using, maybe we'll talk about this later, a colostrometer or a BRICS refractometer to just estimate total IgG, you won't see a huge drop, or sorry, increase rather, um, just because you adopted one of those vaccination programs, but we know it's there. Um, you need a very specific, very sensitive test, an ELISA test, something like that in a lab in order to measure that difference, but it's there. Um, other factors, uh, one is cow comfort. So now we're talking about uh, minimizing, especially heat stress. Uh, that's, a, that's a big one that obviously negatively impacts the cow herself and her future lactation potential. Um, but it has, it can negatively impact the, the calf in utero and potentially the, the quality of the colostrum produced um, as well. And it's, it's, it's a little nebulous there as to, as to what's going on. Part of it could be just, it's a stress event. So uh, producing colostrum in, is an immune regulated thing. So if you suppress your immune system through stress, that could have a, a negative impact. The other potential uh, mechanism is if we know with heat stress or other stressors like overcrowding, frequent pen moves, things like that, if we have a negative impact on dry matter intake because we've introduced these stressors or decreased cow comfort, that kind of thing, anything negatively impacting dry matter intake, now we're back to the nutrition problem, right? She's not getting the nutrition that she needs. So minimizing stressors to the direct dry period, best for the cow, um, best for the calf in the colostrum as well. Uh, let's see what else. Oh, dry period length is, is critical. So we, we know she needs a sufficiently long dry period in order to involute rest the gland and get ready, regenerate the gland for high milk production next lactation. Uh, we know we need a minimum of three weeks dry to produce quality colostrum. And we probably need a minimum closer to 40 days dry to produce the volume of colostrum that we want to see out of these cows. So um, I lost track. I don't know. So, what Sandra, thinking. have you, with that, have you seen mm -hmm. any differences in the one one dry cow pen versus having a far off and a close up. Does that have any major differences there? There's a lot of places they, with the one group. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. People are definitely there's there's um, 
yeah, some motivations on some farms to move to the one group, provided that they're still getting uh, 40 days or more dry, that that should be fine. Um, but we all understand there's a range in the gestation length of a cow, right? Um, they're not all going to have it 282 days carry calf. So we need to add a, a, you know, a margin of safety, you know, add a good, at least one week window on to that predicted um, calving date. So um, I would aim for closer to 50 days dry probably as my target, knowing that some, a lot of cows are still going to calve in early. Um, and the cow that's carrying twins, if your veterinarian is, you know, they're palpating and saying, yep, twins, uh, we know they're going to calve in a couple of weeks early. So I would, I would, you know, suggest you dry her off a couple of weeks early. If you've got a two group, you know, far off close up dry cow program, Jeff, you would move her into the close up pen a couple of weeks early, um, counting on her calving early. Okay, so that's drive your length. And then one other really important factor is affecting quality is how soon, how quickly you can harvest the colostrum after she calves. So ideally she calves and then within an hour or two, we are going to milk her out and harvest that colostrum. That will be the highest concentration of IgG. We recognize though that not every farm has round the clock labor. And even for farms that do, not every farm is set up where they can you know, walk her into a designated chute and harvest that colostrum straight away. They might have to wait to take her to the parlor the next milking. So my, I guess, practical goal would be to see if you can't get every cow milked out within six hours of calving, or at least get 90% of cows out milked out within six hours of calving. I think you should still have pretty decent quality. And then we can talk about monitoring quality with something like the BRICS refractometer, just to know whether or not this is this is working in, in your herd. Um, so those are some of the factors that, that we know have an impact on quality. Volume, um, I've alluded to a couple already. One of the frustrating things within the industry uh, apparently associated with volume is uh, herds go through periods of kind of feast and famine. Uh, they're getting lots of colostrum. Typically a cows will produce on average a gallon per cow or maybe five quarts per cow on average. Um, but then they'll go through spells, and maybe Trish can comment on this in a few minutes if, if they've experienced this at Shady Crest. Spells where for a period of weeks or months, cows aren't producing sufficient volume, and what's up with that? And the truth is we don't truly know, but one of the risk factors, it seems to be associated with heading into the fall months, you know, towards, well, right now, basically, through, you know, October towards Christmas, uh, volumes in some herds will drop. And then as we head out of Christmas towards spring and summer, the volumes swing back up again. And so what's hypothesized is that that is associated with either shortened day length, so messing with our melatonin production, uh, that kind of thing, um, and or um, the cold. Um, so, so a little bit of cold stress and she's diverting uh, more of her nutrients to just her maintenance needs and maybe diverting some away from her, you know, colostrum production. So uh, the temperature humidity index uh, is one and or day length is another. Those two factors are associated with this seasonal dip that we see. But until we get it figured out, um, I guess intervention wise, all I can suggest is prepare for the worst. So when, you know, you've got a surplus in, in spring and summer, 
have a chest freezer, be putting aside your surplus in the freezer so that you've got a surplus buildup if you need it heading into the, the fall and winter months. Mm -hmm. uh, the alternative would be to use more colostrum replacers you know, if, you're, if you're short of maternal colostrum in the fall and winter so months. So with that seasonal trend, I know there could be a dilution effect, but do you see the opposite with the composition of that colostrum, the quality? Trish is oh, taking her head. It's yeah, worse. Yeah. So the volume's <laughs> lower would, and the... Colostrum quality is worse. Okay. Is that what you On our about? farm, yeah, on our farm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard pressed to get a 24 on a Brooks um, in October. A 25, hmm. yeah, it's not, it isn't. Yeah, it happens to us as well. Yeah. So what yeah. what have you uh what if do you see that every year, Trisha? Mm -hmm. And then what what have you tried or attempted? What or how do you prepare for that? So the interesting thing for us is it used to start in September. I've been at Shady Crest for 15 years now, so I have a few years of experience on this farm. And it used to start in September. Now it starts in October. So I'll have good classroom until the end of September now, but now it's October. Um, when I start to run out of classroom. And we do exactly what you said. Um, we try really hard not to use classroom replacers if possible and continue with frozen maternal classroom. So during the spring and summer, we will empty out a freezer um, and we will freeze a 26 on the bricks or a 27 uh, on the bricks classroom and about 20 to 30 bags in my freezer. And they'll sit there until October <laughs> and it'll be time to start pulling them out. And uh, that will get us through the low of no colostrum or low quality colostrum uh, all the way probably, it was basically by the end of November, we're done. Right now, cows are calving with good amount of colostrum right now. So we do, we prepare. I mean, I've gone through years where you're not prepared, obviously, and in the beginning of my years there, not knowing and having to run for boxes and boxes of colostrum replacer. But we've we've learned over the years the best thing to do is when you have uh, a surplus of that 26 and 27, because we know that some of the IgGs die in the freezer. It's not quite as good as feeding fresh pasteurized colostrum, um, and so we try really hard to feed, uh, freeze the higher quantity higher bricks readings. So Tricia, did I hear you right? You said you're already past that low. Yeah. It's yes. really October, maybe October, November. November, and then cows start to produce more colostrum. Then yeah. how would they produce, let's say December, January compared to summer months? Is it fairly equal? Uh, or is there still a little bit of a difference, but just there's, I would say there's a little less. I would agree with Sandra that it, it goes with a little less. But when we go from like a cow giving one quart, if you're lucky to she gives three quarts and it's a better quality, uh, we're we're doing well right now. I guess one yeah. other intervention um, is, is just to double check your dry cow nutrition program as you're heading into the fall months to hopefully you're already meeting protein and energy requirements anyway, but just um, if, if you run into the problem Trish is uh, describing, it might be environment, you know, photo period, temperature, humidity, whatever. Um, but it has been recommended, and this is just through field experience, uh, has been recommended from a few nutrition type people uh, to make sure your metabolizable protein is at at least 1200 to maybe up to 1400 grams per day. Um, make sure you've got sufficient energy, especially in that close up ration. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we do run a two group dry cow prefresh um, situation at our farm. We uh, feed a decad diet 
and uh, our cows I'm very thankful for. We figured it out over the years that they have to eat 30 to 35 pounds of dry matter in my pre-fresh in order for things to run smoothly. And uh, this week when I checked, they were at 34 pounds of dry matter. And I know a lot of people, because for many years we sat at 24 pounds. And I know a lot of people have a hard time getting that, getting to that point. But uh, that was something that we've learned that not only does it increase, um, you know, enough nutrients for the cow, but also zero fresh cow problems or like very low numbers of fresh cow problems and great colostrum. It, it really is the kit and caboodle to get your cows to eat over 30 pounds of dry matter. But figuring that out, that was years of years of struggling. Yeah. Good for, for sure. you. That sounds, that's great. We recently, as we're talking on the subject of volume, recently uh, completed two research studies, one at Michigan State University and the other at the University of Wisconsin, where we supplemented uh, rumen-protected choline uh, prepartum, and we saw a five-pound increase in colostrum approximately on both of those trials. We obviously need to repeat that a, a few more times, but it, it, it's kind of compelling. We've got some ideas what the modes of actions are, but the one thing I was thinking of uh, with Jeff here, we ought to go back and look at that data, Jeff, and to see if we can see some of the seasonality in that production as well. Um, take a look at that. But anyway, interesting results and kind of as relative to this discussion. Yeah, I saw your guys' um, commercial on that uh, as I've been watching your podcast. Yeah, that was interesting as well. Very interesting to feed it during, you know, dry cow and pre-fresh period. Because we yeah. right now we just feed your choline in our fresh cow period. Okay. You know, I'm kind of also curious as we're kind of on this discussion of, uh, of, of quantity. We haven't got the quality. We have a little bit already. But anyway, um, do, do we see a, uh, a correlation between um, high-producing cows? Are they also the cows that produce uh, a large amount of colostrum? Any, any correlation there? I could comment on what this, the research says, and then I'd like to hear what Trish has observed, because I'm sure she's been paying attention to this. Um, there is a very, very weak relationship um, between the volume produced and the quality. Um, there, there used to be this old rule of thumb if she made more than, I think it was 10 pound, a 10 pound rule, it was going to be poor quality, throw it out, don't worry about it. But in, the truth is, if you look at the research and you plot volume produced against the quality, it's a huge scatter, like shotgun blast. So it's a fairly weak relationship. So I wouldn't put much stock in it. Uh, I would default to measuring it. Just just pull out your Brick's refractometer and measure it, and then you then you'll know. Um, so yeah, that's that's what the research seems to suggest. And our yeah, on our end, when uh, when you have a cow that was a high producer last lactation, yeah, she really does tend to come in with more colostrum than your heifer. I also think there's a correlation to the amount of colostrum uh, to the amount of edema in the cow. So most of the time our heifers are the ones with edema. You get edema, you don't get hardly any colostrum out of them. And you'll get some second lactations and a few third lactations with edema, but most of the time it's just the heifers. But you got a cow that comes in with a nice supple udder. Uh, she's was high producing last lactation. She's gonna produce a lot of colostrum for us. And I agree with Sandra. Uh, we don't just blindly feed colostrum. We check everything um, and feed according to what we check on the Brooks refractometer. And Tricia, what's your goal on the Brooks refractometer? Um, 
So I'd like to feed anything over a 24 as a first classroom and anything from an 18 to a 22 on a, as a second classroom. Um, on our farm, we do feed four quarts at the first feeding within the first two hours. And then uh, within eight to 12 hours later, we shoot for the second feeding and that is uh, two quarts. And uh, the second feeding then can be a little bit lower quality. So we sort our, we have our employees as they milk a fresh cow, put her in a bucket and write all oh, number one on it, meaning that's her first milking. And then we save the second milking and that goes in a bucket with a two. And when I low on classroom, I didn't tell you guys this, but during the seasonality time when we're low on classroom, we actually save the third milking as well. And even if it's an 18 or 16, we still feed it as a second colostrum. So Sandra, you said the goal is to have 90% of our samples tested above greater than 22% bricks, which is equivalent to about 50 grams per liter of IgG or IgG. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then, so I understand that, but when I see the, you had a slide with the new goals, the excellent, good, fair, and the excellent was greater than 25 grams per liter. Okay. Where's, yeah. So you're looking at uh, an apples and oranges thing. Uh, the, the greater than 50 gram per liter goal refers to colostrum, the IgG concentration in the colostrum. Okay. The table that you're looking at where it says new goals for monitoring right. passive transfer, that's the serum IgG the level. Serum. In the calf. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's what we're looking for in the calf. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, well, I was just going to go back to the BRICS. Um, so Trish mentioned she uses a BRICS refractometer to monitor, to measure colostrum quality at the cow level and make individual feeding decisions at the cow level. And that's fabulous. And that's that's one way to use that tool. Um, and if and if it was poor quality, you could do what Trish is doing, like the poor quality goes to the second feeding, poor quality, you might add a supplement, poor quality, it might go to the poor little bull calf instead of the heifer calf. Although these days bull calves are worse, way more than heifer calves, which is counterintuitive, but whatever. Um, but anyway, measuring it at the cow level, you can make individual feeding decisions. That's one use of the BRICS refractometer. The other use is to do herd level monitoring, to just ask the question, at the herd level, is my program working? Um, because if it's not, then we need to go back to the some of the variables we've been talking about, nutrition and dry period length and, and things like that to see if we can tweak something. So at the herd level, like if, if Trish measures the next 50 cows or next 100 cows that calve in, my goal is for at least 90% of those cows to test at the 22% or higher. And if she's getting that goal, to me, that tells me her her program, her management program is working. Um, if half of her cows were failing um, to reach that 22%, then we'd go back to that list and see what we could tweak. Mm -hmm. So there's uses to that monitoring, both at the individual animal diagnostic and feeding decision level, as well as the herd level uh, monitoring program. So with that, you know, we always say we can't manage what we can't measure. Tricia, what on your dairy, what do you, what kind of records do you keep on the calves, colostrum, calf health? Because that's a big limitation I've seen on a lot of dairies. There's just mm -hmm. not records. Yeah. Or it's written down somewhere and then manure gets splatted on it and can't read it. <laughs> can't read it. Yeah. Yeah. So on our farm, we record everything. Um, I'm pretty hardcore 
on doing that, keeping it for years. I have years and years of data. I've got probably 10 years of weekly serum protein data as well. Um, each week we do serum proteins every Tuesday. I have a designated employee who does that, who I trained in to do that. We use the same digital refractometer. It's uh, all in one digital uh, bricks and digital refractometer as well for our serum proteins. And uh, we monitor our calves that way. We can tell obviously when the program isn't working, when calves are stressed, when calves are not passing their serum protein. Uh, and along, um, along the same year, we also, and so we, we keep that as a recorded paper. We actually put it up on, um, on one of our refrigerators with magnets so that all the employees can see it. So my veterinarians can see it weekly as well. Um, and then we record all treatments and treatments then are entered in our dairy comp program for our farm to make sure that everything is going the way it's going. If I had a calf that was sick and she calves in and she's still sick, let's say I had a pneumonia calf, I can look back in her previous lactation as a heifer uh, to see if she was ill as well. So we do have a place to record treatments and places to record serum proteins. We have a place to record the second colostrum a piece of paper that my employees write down when they feed that second colostrum. That way the person who comes to feed calves after her or after him can see that that calf is already fed. Um, we do feed our bull calves that are for sale a second colostrum as well. And those we have just a really simple system. We just mark their heads with pink. If the bull calf was just born and he has a head marked with pink, then we know that calf has gotten a second colostrum. If he was just born and does not have pink, then that feeder who comes along in the afternoon or the next morning then knows that that calf needs to be fed second colostrum. And um, we do try really hard to record everything as much as possible to keep our records. I'm sorry, tangent from the records, but that second feeding, are you uh, tubing that or is that a bottle? Yeah, ideally we would, uh, you know, I'm smiling, right? Because <laughs> uh, ideally you would spend all the time that you needed to get that in a bottle, but they're tubed. They're tubed. No, that's fine. No, that's fine. Yeah. I was just curious. No, no, yeah. no judgment. Absolutely not. Well, yeah. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh -huh. Yep, they're tubed. Um, it's very unusual. I actually personally will take my time because I have the time, right? Whereas the feeders are like, they're on a schedule. They got to keep going. But if I'm going to be feeding a second classroom, I will take my time with that calf. I'll walk away and come back. But um, most, almost all the calves are tubed their second classroom because you're right. It's more important that they get it. than I fight with my employees that you have to use a nipple and, you know, she has to drink all of that. So, yeah. And then after that, um, they're transferred over to the milk diet. Do you bucket or bottle feed the milk? So we stay on a bottle for seven days, and on day eight, we switch to a bucket. Yeah, Trisha, I'm kind of curious. You know, um, Sandra talked about the, the four cues. Uh, we've been talking about different aspects of a, a good claustrum management program, but relative to those, those four cues, um, if things break down, I'm sure you guys are doing a wonderful job at your dairy, but if they break down, where does it break down? Which one of those cues is perhaps the toughest or maybe the, the, the bottleneck for you guys? Um, things break down, most definitely. <laughs> I do want to say and admit we do a great job. My employees do a great job. You know, a lot of my employees have many years with me. Uh, I do speak Spanish. And so I'm able to communicate with them uh, the reasons why we do the things the way we do it, but things do break down. Uh, most recently, it was an agitator. So the agitator is supposed to be up and it's supposed to whip the colostrum really well. Well, the agitator's flaps were level. 
And it wasn't whip in the classroom. And when the classroom's a 25, a 26, or a 27, it's basically just denaturing and turning into gel. Well, the employee didn't quite catch that. And so we're feeding denatured colostrum. It's sitting in the stomachs of the calves. It's not passing through. Everybody's unhappy. It took me a little while to figure that out, uh, unfortunately. But I did once I figured out. <laughs> and it, it all literally was just the agitator thing. And, and the thing is, with our pasteurizers, if we're going to pasteurize a batch, then the agitators right need to be lifted up so that they whip the colostrum around. But if we're going to... Um, if we're going to pasteurize a bag, then we put a grate on top of that agitator because the agitator then would, would hit the bag if we didn't have a grate. And so we put the grate on it. Well, the, the little agitator wings hit the grate, so they kind of have to be moved a little. <laughs> and you kind of have to remember to bring them back up, you know. <laughs> so uh, that was the most recent. This was the spring um, breakdown on the farm. Hard to believe that it was that big of a deal but or that small of a deal. But yeah, um, and then the seasonality thing really is an issue. It really truly is an issue. Sometimes uh, we'll have more calves not pass their serum proteins if they're fed uh, frozen colostrum. I liked my employees to write it down that they've actually fed a frozen colostrum. Um, but most of the time, uh, yeah, I don't know. Human error. Obviously, the agitator was human error, right? The up and down. <laughs> but yeah, most of the time it's a, just a a mistake, a human error. It's not for us. It's not a big deal. Our cleanliness really isn't that big of an issue. Um, we're pretty clean. We replace our esophageal tubes every week. We don't feed as many calves as a herd that's milking 5,000 daily, but we feed, um, you know, five to seven calves a week and we'll use one tube during that week. And then every Monday we replace the tube and start with a new tube. That's helpful as well. Very helpful. Mm. Trish, can I ask you a question? You've said twice now that frozen colostrum, uh, you're getting poor results or you think it's damaging IG. That shouldn't be the case. So I'm just wondering um, perhaps how you're thawing it. Um, if it, maybe it's, is it getting put in a hot water bath? What's the temperature? How long is it there? You know, maybe you're damaging it as on the heat up. I, I yeah, don't know. So um, so on the heat up, it's not in hot water. Like it's not in anything over 105 or 110 water. Um, we have the sous chef um, heater inside of a um, inside of a cooler, and then the classroom is set in the cooler. It takes a lot longer. It takes a couple hours for it to thaw out. I'm not going to say that my employees don't leave it out on the on the shelf either, just to start to thaw. You know, as they're waiting for a calf. You know, if we know we have to feed frozen colostrum, but sometimes they they don't pass. And I agree with you. I don't quite know why, um, but it is occasional that that the frozen colostrum doesn't pass. But it is it most of the time it does quite well. OK, good. Yeah, Sandra, I'm going to ask you kind of a similar question. You probably interface with a lot of dairies. Um, where would, where would that weak link be in the process of a good colostrum management program? Uh, and, and where should producers focus maybe some of their most of their resources and attention to improving their colostrum management programs? Uh, I guess a couple of things. Uh, one is monitoring, just, just adopting a routine monitoring program. Um, and we're seeing more herds. Trisha's a perfect example of that, that are now routinely bleeding calves 
monitoring total proteins. You don't have to do every calf, but doing a you know random 15, 20 calves per week or per month depends on your herd size, uh, as well as the colostrum quality, having a BRICS refractometer available and, and recording those results and monitoring the quality. So I, I think there's a big opportunity for a lot of herds to do more consistent monitoring on that front. And if, if they're not, then that's an opportunity for the veterinarian to step in and design a practical program, do whatever training needs doing and get it going. And then, and then look at the numbers, you know, make sure that people know that you're looking at the numbers and giving feedback. And so that they know that this is important. This, um, this means something, it's not just something to do. Um, so monitoring is one. And then of the, of the four cues, um, uh, cleanliness is, is the big, the big one that I'm concerned about. Yes. To the point about, you know, the volume and, and the challenges with volume in the, in the fall, for sure. That's, that's out there and hopefully we'll get that solved one day. But I think there's a huge opportunity to clean up our colostrum more, um, that's important, not just from a pathogen exposure point of view, we don't want to be feeding contaminated colostrum, feeding bugs to calves, but also we've learned uh, over the years that high bacteria counts in colostrum interfere with or negatively impact absorption of the IgG into the circulation of the calf. So if we're feeding dirty colostrum, we're going to get lower serum total proteins in those calves and higher risk for scours and everything else. Um, so, uh, starting to do some cultures, monitoring cleanliness of colostrum being fed. And if, if it's dirty, then going back to identify, okay, where are the, the critical control points in our harvest, our storage, our feeding, you know, all, all the steps on the way to the calf, where is this bacteria being introduced? Is it because we're not adequately prepping the udder? Is it because we're milking into a dirty bucket or transferring that into a dirty bottle um, or tube feeder? Um, are we leaving it to sit out for a couple of hours or longer on a warm July day and just letting bacteria multiply and proliferate in the colostrum mm -hmm. before it gets either fed or refrigerated or frozen? Um, if you do put it in the, in the fridge to store it, uh, we need to chill it as soon as possible after collection. And even then, in the refrigerator, it will still grow bugs uh, just at a slower rate than if it's sitting out on a warm day. So even then, refrigerated colostrum, I still want it used up within a day or two. So looking at those just common sense kind of critical control points on the dairy and see where we can intervene and kind of clean things up. Um, on certain dairies, on a lot of dairies, um, it's appropriate to have a conversation about, well, should we be heat treating colostrum? So Tricia, they pasteurize and they heat treat colostrum on their dairy. And, and that's a pretty, assuming it's working to your point, Tricia, <laughs> that, you know, the, 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 the equipment's working, it's, you know, settings are right. The agitator's working all that stuff. Um, that can be a really nice way of cleaning up colostrum. And we, we, and others have seen benefits, um, Heat treating, it's one way to reduce your bacterial exposure. We see better total proteins, we see healthy calves. Now it's not necessarily for everybody, not everybody needs it, but um, in a lot of herds it is beneficial. And certainly for herds where you may have endemic diseases in the cow herd that you, know, that you don't want to transmit the calves, it's, it's a, a useful tool. So thinking about yonis or salmonella or heaven forbid if there were mycoplasma mastitis, you know, 
percolating through the, the milking herd, we don't want to be feeding that to calves. So that's a, an opportunity for heat treatment. Um, an alternative could be to feed colostrum replacers, and, and they're certainly convenient to feed as well. You just want to make sure you've got a high quality product and you're feeding a sufficient dose, but they're useful tools as well. So with some of those improvement areas, Tricia, you said you've been at uh, Shady Chris 15 years. Where, where do you feel like y'all made the most improvements in colostrum management, calf management? Were there any significant changes you've made or did you make the clean cleaner, the quick quicker? <laughs> well, I think it is um, probably a correlation or, or just a whole bunch of things coming together um, and maybe employee training all the way to, I got a new cooler for cooling the classroom. Instead of having a refrigerator, I have a cooler. It's a lot faster for cooling down the classroom. Um, we've over the years upgraded our pasteurizer to get a little bit better pasteurizer since it's used every day. Um, I do, I think I, I think I put a lot of emphasis on the employees and their willingness to do what I asked them to do um, and them to stick with it and be consistent with it. I think that's probably the biggest thing, you know, as put, so we have weekly, we have regular, we don't have weekly, but we have regular meetings. Um, we talk about the milkers not milking the classroom and then letting it sit in the pail in the parlor. As soon as you're done milking the cow, it needs to go to the refrigerator. Um, we have regular communication about how often that pasture or that classroom comes out of the pasteurizer. And now I have an employee that's been there for almost 10 years now feeding my calves and she brings the classroom every morning. So over to be pasteurized and processed and that has been consistent for a long time. And I think that the consistency that we do daily on our farm and the fact that we've had people in certain areas not turn over, I think that goes a long way because you get the same person doing the same thing every day and you get um, me, who I strive to do my best as much as possible on the farm to to get to the feeding program where we are. We, um, My calf feeder was instrumental in helping us determine how, um, over the years, how we were going to feed milk, what she sees when, when we feed milk, even just the regular 20-day-old calves or 10-day-old calves. Um, instrumental in getting that second feeding of classroom into those bull calves that are going to be sold. Uh, a lot, a lot of things have been been able to be to be done because I have people who are willing to do it, and I think that's probably the most important. I'd be remiss because I often get questions from my Jersey owners, and as much as we talk about the low colostrum and quantity, it seems like the Jersey people suffer even more. Sometimes is there. Is it just a breed difference or you got any background on that? Um, when you say they suffer, Jeff, you mean, you know, just more morbidity, more mortality in the calves? No, no, from a colostrum, a colostrum basis. Uh, I, I just seem like I hear the Jersey people, a, a couple of nutritionists that have. Um, so when we're positioning our room and protected choline, and we've seen those effects on improvements in colostrum. They're like, well, I need to see it in those in those Jersey animals too. 
they feel like they get hit a little bit harder. I don't know if that's true. I'm not, I haven't been vested in that. Yeah. Okay. Don't, I don't know is the, the short answer. Um, we don't have, frankly, we don't have good studies where we've put Jersey cows and Holstein cows and whatever other breed you want in the same barn, same environment, same ration and tested them for differences. So we have these preconceived ideas that, Oh, Jersey's are more this or more that whatever. There's really not a good, not good research to support it one way or the other. That's my, my okay. take on it. Um, I've only closely worked with one large Jersey herd here in Minnesota who worked with them for many years now. I've done several colostrum studies there. Uh, typically they were summertime studies because that's when we had student help available to go, go do the work, student technicians. And uh, my, it was fine. Um, okay. Volume was fine. Quality was excellent. Uh, if we fed a sufficient volume to the calf, it was heat treated and then tube fed just a single feeding, we get really good levels in the calves. Again, that's an N of one herd, but um, it suggests that it can, jerseys can be managed well. Now they were, you know, on top of nutrition, they were on top of heat abatement in the dry period. They were on top of uh, harvesting colostrum very quickly after calving, like doing all the things that we've talked about in this um, podcast today. Um, so they, they, they seem to be doing everything right and they were getting good results. Again, N of one herd, but I don't, I don't have any data to say jerseys are worse in terms of managing the cow. Okay. And it may have been the day that I was talking to a couple of people in November, which was their bottom time too. Who knows? So just yeah. kind of curious. Okay. Well, that's why I asked you, you know, were you referring to the calf? Because yeah. that's a different animal. I mean, you right. know, they're much more prone to cold stress, you know, so they're apart from the colostrum, there's, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on that we have to manage with, with Jersey calves. Um, so that's why I was wondering. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I've got one more question. <laughs> the absorption of the colostrum itself, how, how much of that is due to the certain factors within that colostrum versus the stomach lining at birth, the villa, it, what, what affects the absorption in simple terms? Okay. Well, the, the biggest factor that we understand reasonably well is that a concept of the calf is born with an open gut right. and then over the first 24 hours, give or take a few hours, it closes. So the epithelial lining of the small intestine, uh, initially it can, these large protein molecules, these immunoglobulins, which are big proteins, can be um, attached and then moved, moved across the gut into the circulation. Um, but in that first 24 hours, the epithelial lining, the surface lining of the gut changes, turns over, and we lose that ability to absorb the IgG. So that process is called closure. And that that is, to my mind, the most significant uh, factor that's affecting absorption. Um, so that's, and that's why we stress what, why it's so important to feed that calf quickly, you know, within ideally within the first couple of hours, but as soon as possible after birth to get the best efficiency of absorption of the Ig that you did feed. Other factors, um, th there are several. Um, one I've already talked about a little bit is the cleanliness of the colostrum. 
We know that colostrum with high levels of bacterial contamination, we see impaired efficiency of absorption. So somehow those bacteria are binding or blocking or interfering with moving the Ig molecule across the gut. So there's less moved across. Um, so that's one of the reasons we stress feeding clean colostrum. Uh, there are several calf factors. So um, calves that are born stressed have impaired circulation, don't stand as quickly. Um, they, they seem to have uh, more uh, troubles, impaired absorption, if you will. So um, dystocias, uh, premature deliveries, uh, cold stress, uh, heat stress, um, even heat stress while you're in the dam's uterus. Back to heat abatement for the dry cow. Um, there are a number of stressors that uh, can negatively impact the calf's ability to absorb those antibody molecules. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. Kind of, uh, but but it leads to another question, right? If the, the the gut closes after you know 24 hours, and yet you're seeing benefit of feeding it in two to three weeks out. I'm assuming it's still being absorbed, or is there another mode of action at play there? There are other modes of action at play. <laughs> so what you just said, Scott, yeah. So roughly 24 hours, give or take, the gut closes. We can't, the calf can't move more Ig protein out of the lumen of the gut into the circulation. But that Ig protein is still in the lumen of the gut. And as it's flowing down the gut, it's bumping into binding with and neutralizing pathogens, viral, bacterial, whatever. So that's one benefit. So that's a reason for why we're seeing benefits over the next two and three weeks. Um, in addition to that, it's not just the immunoglobulins. There are tons of bioactive compounds, growth factors, hormones, um, antibacterial compounds uh, that, that are going to help with development of the gut and local immunity and even systemic immunity. Um, if we, one of these studies that I was describing earlier that fed um, a colostrum supplement for out to two weeks, they didn't just see a reduction in scours, they saw improved rate of gain and they saw less pneumonia. So the, the lungs are sitting over here. How could what's happening in the gut affect systemic immunity? Well, it is. And it's some of these other immune mediators that are at play and growth factors and growth hormones and what have you. So there's a whole lot of goodies in colostrum that are impacting health and performance. Uh, in addition to that, there's the nutrition. So uh, if we think about whole milk, it's 12 and 13% total solids, right? Um, colostrum, Holstein colostrum is going to be closer to 24, 25, maybe even higher percent total solids. So there is a pile of extra protein, dietary protein, fat, calories, uh, some vitamins coming in in colostrum that are going to support her, that support the calf nutritionally. And, and we know through many, many other studies in calves and many other species as well, the higher the plane of nutrition, well, the more you grow, but also the higher the plane of nutrition, the better your immune system works because the immune system needs energy and, and, and other nutrients to support its function. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on outside of just the antibodies that are supporting improved health and growth with this extended feeding, even if the gut is already closed. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, 
Well, Jeff, you said you're out of bourbon, or you yeah, have bourbon. I'm out of bourbon, and uh, this is a bit of an hourglass. So when my, my bourbon's out, that means it's time to close <laughs> it down. And so why don't we do that uh, with last call? Um, you guys have been great guests. This has been a great topic. But what I'd like you to do now is uh, just, just if, if, if the audience remembers one thing out of this discussion, what would that be? What do you want them to know? And Jeff, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with you if you don't mind. Tonight's last call question is brought to you by NitroSure Precision Release Nitrogen. NitroSure delivers a complete TMR for the rumen microbiome, helping you feed the microbes that feed your cows. To learn more about maximizing microbial protein output while reducing your carbon footprint, visit balcom.com slash NitroSure. Well, I think at the beginning, Sandra said she thought a lot of... Uh, of the audience that may be dairyman nutritionists here that may be get bored hearing about colostrum and they may get bored hearing about squeaky clean or quicker because they've heard that but you know and scott you know we haven't been balchem hasn't been vested in the in this for a long time but as we're starting to learn more about effects of reassure with colostrum and how it affects the performance of the baby um as we talk to dairymen, if we can tell them something that will improve their colostrum quantity or quality, I think they're still interested. So I think I think um, we need to keep pushing these buttons, delivering this message. I think you know, they're very kind of, interested in it. Kind of follow up with that, Jeff. You know, 30% of our audience is not in the United States. And I know that traveling around, speaking with, with uh, dairymen around the world, um, they may not put the same emphasis on colostrum uh, as we do here in the States. And so I think the, there's still a lot uh, to learn to be implemented, uh, you know, outside sure. the United States. Yep. yep. Trisha, you've been a great, uh, a great guest. Uh, thanks, Sandra, for inviting you. Uh, it's not often we get the, a, a great practical uh, input. Um, what's one, one, uh, one final thought that you'd like to leave with our audience? Well, I was thinking about what I was going to say. Um, I think that you're to remember that your first feeding a colostrum is setting up your milking dairy cow. And if you set her up to do poor because her first feeding a colostrum is poor, you're going to get at the end of the day, a poor milking cow. So we should strive to remember that every baby born on the farm needs to have supreme colostrum inside of them because they're going to become a supreme cow. Well, that's a great point. That's your future. That's your future right there. Let's take care of them. Mm -hmm. Very well. Sandra, you said at the beginning, you know, uh, colostrum, it's liquid gold. It's got high value. Uh, put a, an exclamation point on that for, for us, if you will. Yeah, I guess that kind of ties back to what Trish and Jeff were just talking about is there's, there's long-term economic benefits to the producer for, for getting that first feeding right or that the, the program right. Um, and we didn't talk about this um, in the last hour, but um, there have been studies describing, you know, short term, we see benefits like reduced morbidity, reduced mortality, everybody gets that. But longer term, we see improved rate of gain, lower age at first calving, and more milk in the first and second lactation. Um, you really truly are setting her up for a successful lifetime. Um, so there's, 
yes, it's what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever to do that job right. It's well worth your while to get that job done correctly and get that cat off to a good start. Yeah. Thank you. Um, great one, guys. Uh, Jeff, appreciate your input. Tricia, you're a great guest. Sandra, what a great topic. It's an important topic. Uh, really appreciate the conversation. To our loyal listeners, uh, thank you once again for coming along with us on this journey. Uh, we really appreciate you. Um, we hope you learned something. We hope you had some fun. And we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of Webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.